Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Before Vladimir Putin launched the insane depravity that is his invasion of Ukraine, he gave a long national address that purported to tell the history of Ukraine and Russia, which to his mind justified the coming reconquest. Ukraine is not just a neighbor, Putin said. It is an integral part of our history, culture and spiritual space. Putin watchers say that in his isolation, he has become something of an amateur historian, diving deep into the legends of the pre-Russian empire and emerging with a warped national mythology he's now infusing with his own embittered contempt for Ukraine and the European continent to its west. It's a fraught and contested history, and one that isn't yet over. To help sort through a less mutated strain of the region's history, I spoke with Vladimir Ischenko, a Ukrainian sociologist and a research fellow at the Institute of Slavic Studies. He was heavily active in a number of Ukrainian New Left initiatives and was a founding editor of the left-wing intellectual publication Commons, Journal of Social Criticism. His academic work focuses on the Maidan uprising of 2014, but he spoke to us too about the development of the state in Ukrainian culture over the last thousand years. Now, I began by asking him a question that's about as trivial as anything imaginable, given the unfolding invasion. But I've wondered why we in the West have been told to move from the Ukraine to just Ukraine and from Kiev to Kiev. And I've suspected it had something to do with Ukrainian nationalism and state formation. And Vladimir said that that was roughly right and that there's a tiny faction of Kiev, Kiev partisans who care an extraordinary amount about the pronunciation, but nobody else really does. There are much graver problems in Ukraine right now than the questions of how Kyiv should be pronounced. So to help navigate the rest of this conversation, here's a tiny bit of background. We talked for a while about the Kievan Rus, which is a group of people who are at the heart of Putin's claim that Ukraine is really just a bunch of Russians who don't know it. The Kievan Rus date back to about the 9th century and are hotly contested between Ukrainians and Russians who both try to claim them. I don't want to spoil too much of it, but Ischenko says that the newest historical research actually says that they're both wildly wrong. We also talked about Nestor Makhno, who was a Ukrainian anarchist revolutionary. He's a fascinating and controversial figure who played a major role in the 1917 Russian Revolution. He both fought against the Germans and later against the counter-revolutionaries known as the Whites, and then also against the Bolsheviks, who he saw as authoritarians hijacking the revolution. And the Euromaidan revolution, of course, that came in 2014, after the Russian leading president Viktor Yanukovych backed out of a free trade deal with Europe, and after huge protests and a coup, a Western-leaning government took over. That precipitated Russia's annexation of Crimea and the ongoing war in Donbass, or, if you prefer, in the Donbass. If you want to jump straight to our conversation about the period of 2014 up to today, that starts at about minute 25. For the other thousand years, I'm joined now by Vladimir Ischenko. Well, uh, Vladimir, thank you so much for joining me on uh, Deconstructed. Thank you, and my pleasure to join this podcast in these difficult times. Yes. Um if you trace the history of the Ukrainian people or or Ukraine, where where do you go back to? Like where where do you kind of source the beginning of of the culture that has evolved into what is today Ukraine? 
uh, like there is a standard Ukraine. All the way back to San Andrew or like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are quite many people, but uh, in the academic community, they are, of course, total freaks who would <laughs> start the history of Ukraine from uh, several thousand years, from some Neolithic uh, cultures that uh, were found on the territory of Ukraine, and there is a folk history that they could be the direct ancestors of contemporary Ukrainians, but that's, uh, that's really freak science. There is a standard uh, school books narrative that would start uh, the history of Ukraine, or at least of, uh, of Ukrainian peoples from the early Middle Ages, from uh, Kiev and Rus, an early Middle Age, something like a state, that uh, now is actually, uh, that has always been contested between Ukrainians and Russians. Russians would, would, would like, in, in, for example, in, in the Russian imperial history, they would even claim that Ukrainians didn't have any connection to the history of Kiev and Rus, that was supposedly a Russian state, and Ukrainians appeared on the territory of Ukraine somewhere later. That was a standard narrative in the 19th century Russian Empire. Hmm. In the Soviet Union, the story was told that uh, Kiev and Rus was uh, the state of uh, one people that was a predecessor to three brotherly people, Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians. The uh, narrative which is told in the uh, Ukrainian schools now is trying to Ukrainianize the Kiev and Rus legacy. And to, to, to say that there is a direct connection mm-hmm. from Kiev and Rus to, to contemporary Ukraine. The irony, again, is that most probably this was something like a... It, it, it was actually a, not exactly a state, but uh, according to a, a very interesting Kiev historian, Alexei Tolochko, this was more, more like a trade company of ancient uh, Norsemen who were known in uh, Western Europe as Vikings, Mm -hmm. the the, the very state appeared uh, as a trade company of these Norsemen from Scandinavia who probably even found found Kyiv's settlement or at least expanded it into some sort of a city because they needed it as a trade post. Right. And uh, those uh, Norsemen, they were trading different things on the routes in the Eastern Europe, connecting Northern Europe to Byzantium, to Arab world, to Eastern countries. And they traded different things, including slaves. Right. So in the most extreme version, uh, this was like a slaveholder trade company. But this is an interesting narrative, but uh, that could be taken as even offensive by many Ukrainians. But if looking at the archaeological evidence, uh, that's probably much uh, closer to the realities of the emergence of the Kievan Rus than uh, attempts to present it as a full-scale state, because this, this is always something like a modernization of what, what existed like thousands of years ago, 1,000 to be precise, and to project on those political social formations uh, the contemporary 
perceptions and contemporary concepts about how the state is supposed to be, how the society is supposed to be. So the next stage in Ukrainian history is, uh, of course, the Cossacks, the warriors and uh, tradesmen uh, who were found in their settlements uh, on the banks of uh, Dnieper River, mm-hmm. and not only in Ukraine, in, uh, in, in, in some parts of Russia as well, and also defending the lands uh, against the attacks from uh, Crimean Tatar state, uh, from uh, mm-hmm. the Ottoman Empire, from some no- nomads, and in the standard Ukrainian narrative, right. this is presented as another step in formation of Ukrainian identity and also statehood uh, with the uprising against the Polish kingdom, Rzecz Pospolita, led by Cossack leader Bogdan Khmelnytsky. And the next stage is a discussion of how in this surprising the Cossacks decided to sign an alliance with the Russian Tsar and uh, how then uh, Russians actually betrayed all the clauses of that alliance and gradually subjugated Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And then the, another uh, an, another stage uh, is the Ukrainian revolution when the Romanov Empire, uh, the Russian Empire collapsed uh, during the First World War and uh, the, uh, the revolution started and uh, in Ukraine it had all, also a national component. There was a Ukrainian intelligentsia that uh, since the 19th century as in many other parts of Eastern Europe, uh, they started to be interested in the folk customs, in the um, uh, culture of the of ordinary peasants who lived, uh, who populated those lands, tried to formalize the language of those peasants. So they formalized the dialects that were spoken on Ukrainian lands and they imagined Ukraine. They started to construct Ukrainian nationhood, and somewhere by the end of uh, 19th century, they started to formulate the idea that uh, Ukraine is a separate nation and it should become uh, eventually an independent state. So this uh, idea was then pushed during the revolution times, and there were several attempts to form a Ukrainian government, some republics, some more like military governments uh, an attempt to uh, another attempt to also to to create a kind of like a monarchy and the german uh, protectorate those attempts were very temporary bolsheviks were able to win the civil war after the russian revolution some of the leaders of the ukrainian movement in those times they explained that victory uh, that the victory of bolsheviks in a way that ukrainian peasants they were actually not so much interested in ukrainian identity and they, they even needed to explain those ukrainian peasants who are ukrainians at all because they have a completely different understanding of the of themselves N- not exactly russians but uh, they had local identities. These were like mostly illiterate peasants. But Bolsheviks were able to propose them more radical social reform. Right. So 
should I continue or? <laughs> well, what? Yeah. Well, let me pause there because in the West, when people think about the history of Ukraine over the last several hundred years, one of the things that kind of stands out to people who kind of dabble in history is the the strength of anarchism in Ukraine. You know, not not just Nestor Makhno during the Russian Revolution, but also you know strains of it that had existed in the past, or that perhaps we project anarchist ideas onto, you know, with our kind of modern understanding of it. And I'm wondering if there's anything in particular about Ukraine's situation on the map or anything else that led it to be more receptive to anarchist ideas at that time. Oh, and, and maybe it fits with what you were just saying, that if these are illiterate peasants, and if they're told that the system that we're proposing here is that you can run your life and run your farm and your town as you see fit with no boot on your neck, then that seems rather appealing. I, I would agree, actually, with this uh, explanation, because the anarchist movement at that moment was uh, getting appeal mostly from the peasants uh, who were not, not rich, but they were not uh, totally poor. So they had some property, they had some land, uh, but they were not able to become like um, mm-hmm. countryside capitalists, mm-hmm. kulaks, or as they were called during the Russian Revolution and in the early Soviet Union. So this idea of self-independence, of course, they appealed to this part of the peasantry in Ukraine. And because Ukrainian land, I mean, the, the actual uh, land where they, uh, they grow uh, food, was richer than the land in more northern parts of of Russian Empire, the peasants in Ukraine were actually a little bit more affluent. Mm -hmm. And that created the basis for Makhnovist movement. But there have been many... um, Mm -hmm. During the Civil War, they were called Otamani, which could be translated roughly as warlords. So when the state collapsed, of course, there were like multiple warlords mm-hmm. that were trying to build their own armies, mobilize the peasants, uh, and claiming to fight for their independence. And, and they were competing with the different uh, attempts to, for state formation. And Makhno was just one of them. We, we also need to understand the, the, the broader context and how much uh, he could appeal. So, Unfortunately for Makhno, uh, his uh, appeal was not capable to win uh, larger territories and to start any sense uh, as... Uh, yeah, of course, for anarchists, the whole idea of the state is uh, very right. problematic. Right. But um, Makhno was not that naive. However, his movement was still not capable to right. form anything like a stable political institution, whatever we would call it within the anarchist tradition right uh, and they and they uh, and they lost uh, eventually they lost the bolsheviks right and so how quickly did you move from makhno and his movement losing to the bolsheviks to kind of the stalinist tyranny that we learn about in school uh th- th- there was actually a period a very important period in the 1920s a very important also for ukrainian national identity formation a period of so-called Koreanizatia policies, meaning uh, uh, that were trying to root uh, their power. They won in the civil war uh, by force, 
and also by the promise of the radical reform in the interest of the peasants and workers. So the idea was that the uh, the the parts of the Soviet Union uh, that were institutionalized as uh, quasi-states, quasi-independent states at least, uh, Ukrainian republic mm-hmm. among them, they would be formed from the local cadres. Mm-hmm. So the Ukrainian Soviet republic would be run by Ukrainians. Which Putin referenced recently, right, as a giant mistake. He, yeah, he mentioned it uh, as a giant mistake for, from the perspective of uh, Russian imperial narrative, maybe it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. From the perspective of uh, Bolsheviks, it was actually not a mistake. Mm-hmm. So they were able to stabilize the uh, situation, to stabilize their power, and to start uh, the rev- revolutionary transformation. And they were able to speak to the local population in the language they understood. Basically, the Bolsheviks contributed a lot to the formation of Ukrainian national identity in the way of teaching the peasants literacy. Before the revolution, most of the most of Ukrainian peasants were illiterate. They learned how to read and write after the revolution. They will. Uh, they learned uh, in in uh, in the Soviet schools, mm-hmm. and of course, in those schools, they were told not simply how to read and write, but uh, the, the whole national narrative. Who are Ukrainians at all? What are their relations with Russians? What are the relations with Poles, and so on? And uh, that idea of the brotherly people, mm-hmm. uh, Ukrainian uh, people and Russian people, as, as Brothers, that idea, that national narrative was told right. in the Soviet schools to Ukrainian peasants, and that, that's how they understood uh, the history of Ukrainian people. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And how did that affirmative policy from the Bolsheviks then intersect with the Stalinist policy? What was left after World War II of the ideas that people were taught and inculcated with and believed. And did the Holodomor affect different parts of Ukraine differently? Yeah, the Holodomor, the Great Famine of the 1932-1933 is uh, super important in, in contemporary Ukrainian historical narrative. And uh, part of historians and also the most of the political elite and even the people in the polls, they would say that Holodomor was a genocide of Ukrainian nation. 
although it's uh, yeah at this moment it's a it's very difficult discussion and uh, one of the consequences of this invasion that started last week would be that the whole history of ukraine would be revised Mm -hmm. and almost everything would be seen as the steps towards what putin did uh, on thursday right and of course, there would be even more people now convinced that, yes, indeed, the communists wanted to eradicate Ukrainian nation. Right. Or at least to, to kill as much Ukrainians as possible. And uh, unfortunately, any nuanced discussion on these issues would be very difficult uh, for quite a while. Right. Yeah, however, this war would end. And um, during the Stalinist period, the the uh, localization, Koreanizatia policies, they were gradually revised. And uh, especially during the Second World War, Stalin started to appeal primarily to the uh, Russian identity. The uh, heroes of the Russian empires were kind of like invited back. Stalin started to construct the Soviet narrative with uh, uh, greater emphasis on the uh, Russian nation. And after the war, the uh, what, what what has become interpreted as Russification has intensified. What effect did that have on the culture after the fall of the Soviet Union and the division? when Ukraine becomes then fully independent? Uh, the impact was actually quite mixed. Uh, so despite of this uh, gradual Russification, the Soviet state actually supported a lot of Ukrainian language culture, Ukrainian language press, Ukrainian language books, uh, plays, uh, movies. They, got, uh, they, they were receiving uh, very significant um, uh, state financial support. After the Soviet Union collapsed, that support was eradicated. Mm. And what actually happened, that the market started to rule. Right. And so far as, for example, uh, the current president of Ukraine, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, he was making almost all of his show business production before he became a president and when he was a comedian, that that production was in Russian language. Although all, all, all of his team, I suppose, were from Ukraine. Why, why in Russian language? Because in Russian language, you could sell your production for, all, for Russia and all, almost all of the other parts of the former Soviet Union. So the, Zelensky's shows could be watched by a much larger audience. And, and, and that's, sim- that's a market lo- logic, uh, very simple, very straightforward. The problem was that the U- Ukrainian language uh, stopped receiving uh, a substantial state support, and it, it required state support. Uh, what happened after the Euromaidan revolution in 2014 and after the war in Donbass started, under the pretext of the war with Russia, uh, Ukrainian state started to uh, push forward something like a protectionist policies in support of Ukrainian-based artists or writers. 
for example, they blocked many uh, Russian TV stations. They made it difficult to uh, import Russian books to Ukraine. And that created kind of like a protectionist uh, niche for Ukrainian language culture and combined with the interest in uh, Ukrainianness in the, in the part of Ukrainian population also connected to the Donbass war that was seen as a, as a Russian aggression uh, by a part of Ukrainian population. That, that created both the audience and also the protectionist measures to expand the Ukrainian language culture. So the, 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 it, now it has a much stronger food than before the almost like 25 years of uh, pre-Euromaidan history, when uh, without significant support, the Russian language was uh, still having quite, quite strong positions within Ukrainian public sphere. What was your view of the Euromaidan revolution at the time? Uh, at the time, it was skeptical, and uh, we, uh, we also started to uh, uh, study the Euromaidan, to collect systematically the data on the protest events during the Euromaidan, taking interviews with the participants of Euromaidan, but also of the participants of the anti-Maidan uh, mobilizations and also with some of the law enforcement. So th th this is very significant uh, empirical material that uh, we are still in the process of the analysis. But uh, now I would see Euromaidan as a kind of like a deficient revolution, a deficient solution for the crisis of political representation. Hmm. It was a huge problem for all of the post-Soviet states. And uh, Putinism or the rule of Lukashenko in Belarus is another deficient solution. Right. One is that conserved the crisis, gave some stability, and that's uh, that's that's created those uh, so-called pro-Putin's majorities, uh, which may not be necessarily majorities. However, there, there would be still a quite significant number of people who would stably vote for Putin, and that is, of course, very important in the way he is capable to stay in power for so many years. The Maidan revolutions, and we actually use them as a generic term, is another deficient solution for the crisis of political representation. Not the one which conserves the crisis, but the one which in an attempt to solve this crisis, to bring the masses of people to the politics to which they were alienated from and to which they, they didn't believe from, they didn't believe any politician, they had very low trust to the government, to the parliament, and the moment of revolutionary mobilization is actually the entrance of the masses to the politics something that is supposed to solve this distance between the society and the politics, which creates the crisis of political representation. But in a way to solve uh, this crisis, the, the Maidan revolutions only reproduced the crisis and even intensified it. And uh, the, the problem is that those revolutions, they did have revolutionary aspirations. And the people indeed were struggling not simply to change one oligarch, Viktor Yanukovych, 
the pre-Euromaidan president of Ukraine to another oligarch, Petro Poroshenko, post-Euromaidan president of Ukraine, a billionaire, and who actually um, made quite big profit from being a president, judging from the, his position in the Forbes list of right. top rich people in, in Ukraine. Uh, but uh, the people uh, who protested, they uh, did want to change the system fundamentally. They aspired for really revolutionary changes. But uh, they w articulated uh, these revolutionary aspirations very vaguely. They didn't have any well-articulated and well-elaborated programs of change. Uh, they were also quite loosely organized without strong organizations who, who, who could claim leadership in that uh, revolutionary mobilization. There was actually quite high distrust to the opposition leaders who were speaking on behalf of Maidan. Mm -hmm. And most of the people who protested on the, on the squares would not even perceive them as actual leaders. Yeah. But that meant that the revolutionary aspirations... Uh, lacking strong leadership, strong organic leadership, really representing the participants of the revolution, lacking strong organizations, uh, lacking uh, articulated programs, they could not change the institutions in the way that people aspired. And instead of that, the Euromaidan revolution allowed and created the conditions to be simply hijacked uh, the, it created a resource of uh, revolutionary legitimacy to which different groups that participated in the Euromaidan protests, liberals, nationalists, far-right, uh, oligarchic parties, so on and so forth, they could appeal to this revolutionary legitimacy and to promote their own agendas, the, which were very different from what the people aspired for. So, Instead of uh, getting the jobs and getting the um, better wages, living like in Europe, they got the agendas of the neoliberal NGOs. Right. So having studied that moment so closely, what do you think is the best way, the most accurate way to describe the U.S.'s role in the Euromaidan revolution? Uh, I would say that uh, rather than inspiring the Euromaidan revolution, kind of like very cliched narrative of the CIA-backed coup d'etat right. that uh, was taken by some parts on the left. Uh, this is a huge distortion of uh, what actually happened. And uh, what what happened was uh, uh, more uh, the thing that uh, I've been actually talking about. The Euromaidan revolution was a deficient revolution and uh, it uh, it was structurally predisposed to be hijacked by different agendas, by different agents. And the U.S. government actually exploited, rather than started the Euromaidan revolution, but it exploited the Euromaidan revolution for the, its own interests in the Eastern Europe. What happened after the Euromaidan was the kind of institutionalizing the different mechanisms of control and dependency of, of 
the Ukrainian government, dependency on the uh, Western institutions and on and the Western governments. So in this Russian, but also uh, among the parts of Ukrainian opposition narrative, uh, they described it as, it as a external management or external external administration. That was, of course, a huge exaggeration. But it's also true that Ukraine became more dependent on the foreign powers as it ever been dependent since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so that was perceived as a, as a tool against corruption because uh, it, uh, it was argued that uh, Ukrainians, the local Ukrainians, would be uh, would be easily corrupted, or they would be even by default involved into some clientelistic networks, and they would promote some specific particular interests of those networks. So, uh, getting more foreigners to control Ukrainian government uh, would allow more transparency and more and less risks of corruption. Right. And so that that the the Euromaidan revolution created uh, something like uh, some uh, kind of like a legitimation for this expanding institutional dependency of of the Ukrainian government, the target of which was was primarily the influence of so-called Ukrainian oligarchs mm-hmm. uh, that could buy the politicians, that could buy the officials, and which would uh, serve the uh, interests of specific financial industrial groups. But the irony with this is that for seven or eight years before the war started and after the Euromaidan, uh, the uh, real uh, anti-corruption achievements and the uh, real risks for the oligarchs were almost like invisible. So the, 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 if you look at the Forbes list of the richest people in Ukraine, it's, it's, it's uh, amazingly stable. Right. Only Poroshenko made his career to the, almost to the top. But if you look at, uh, at it in 2014, and if you look at it in 2021, you would basically see the same people. Right. And this is despite all these eight years of the anti-corruption reforms, of the multiple... Of the, the huge money uh, given to Ukrainian civil society, if the people uh, actually in Ukraine di- could not see the any visible results, but only the, the talks about reforms and uh, implementing the legislation that actually didn't improve their lives, they were understandably skeptical about the uh, the course of the uh, of the country's development. And that was, of course, the one of the reasons why uh, Zelensky mm-hmm. was able to win in a huge landslide victory against Petro Poroshenko, being a perfect symptom of the crisis of political representation in Ukraine. A person with, with, with zero political experience, so even less than Trump right. had, right. was able to win against a dinosaur of Ukrainian politics. Petro Poroshenko went to politics in the 1990s. Ironically, he was initially in the same party, which the party of regions, 
uh, which uh, was the main party of Viktor Yanukovych and uh, which was toppled in the Euromaidan revolution. And that also tells a lot about this Ukrainian oligarchic politics where the, it's primarily about cynical, pragmatic interests, right. not about any ideologies at all. Right. And But before the war, uh, Poroshenko was the leader of the nationalist opposition, being a, at the same time a Russian speaker and speaking to his children in Russian language and for quite a long uh, retaining his uh, factory in Russia despite the war in Donbass and speaking very nice things to Putin privately as we now know from the leaked phone calls. Mm -hmm. So uh, for him nationalism is is simply a tool, an instrument how to uh, uh, preserve his power uh, during while well, he was still a president. So uh, I'm curious, at, at, at what point do you think that Putin's invasion became inevitable? Like how, how long ago? What, what, do you think there was a moment when the die was cast? Do you think that was recently within the last few weeks? Or do you think that developments over the last few years guaranteed that he would take this move? Uh that's of course a difficult question, and uh, I'm afraid now that uh, this invasion would be now projected to the past, mm-hmm. and many people would uh, see that Russia was like almost always prepa- were was preparing to invade Ukraine, to capture Ukraine, and everything was leading to right to what to, to what happened last week, and it's still going on. And uh, it was very difficult to discuss any alternatives. Mm-hmm. When, when exactly the final decision was made, uh, I interpreted Putin's strategy as a, a kind of like a coercive diplomacy. He is making a threatening move, but then expects some concession or some evidence of the desire to compromise with uh, with him uh, from Ukraine, from the US, from the EU, on the issues of the NATO membership for Ukraine, or on the implementation of the Minsk Accords. And if they uh, don't listen, he makes another threatening move, and then another, another, another. And uh, I, I was not actually uh, thinking that he would, uh, he would go for the full-scale invasion, because of the many reasons, and the many reasons that the many of uh, post-Soviet uh, social scientists didn't believe in, in these invasions, and for the reasons why the Ukrainian government didn't really took the uh, risk, the threat of invasion seriously, as we know from mm-hmm. from the statements from Zelensky and from other Ukrainian top officials, why Ukrainian intelligence didn't take the threat that seriously why most of ukrainians were not believing in the in the threat and I'm, I'm not even speaking about the russians within russia it was uh, according to the cnn poll published just before the invasion started something like 15 percent of russians believed it would be possible hmm. and it was also uh, most of uh, the russian expert community many russian journalists even even clearly oppositional to putin they didn't believe in the invasion and they were reacting to the quite outlandish statements uh, during that uh, 
media campaign about the imminent invasion in the US and UK media. Uh, for example, that Russian tanks just 100% need a frozen ground in Ukraine and that the ground is supposed to be frozen in Ukraine until the end of March, as if Ukraine is in, some, is in Siberia or whatever. Right. And these claims were also stated in reputable American media with references to some official sources. And of course, this contributed only to it. it uh, I think it actually helped Putin to get that surprise effect. When even most of the probably most of European politicians didn't really believe that uh, that invasion would, would really happen. And they were skeptical to the forecasts of US and UK intelligence, as, as, as we know. And maybe this is one of the reasons why they react now so outrageously mm-hmm. like if we expected that invasion to happen since uh, October uh, why they did not prevent it why why why, why they didn't uh, make more moves in order to stop it uh, why they didn't push Ukraine why they didn't push Ukraine to make some uh, Uh, moves towards concessions, specifically on the Minsk Accords, on the NATO membership. Before the uh, before the invasion, I, su- I suppose a couple of weeks before that, I, I wrote an op-ed for Al, Al Jazeera explaining that uh, if Ukraine won't start its own uh, independent policy within this conflict about NATO and also the conflict with Russia about Donbass, Uh, eventually, Ukrainian fate would be decided by the great powers. Now it is quite possible that Ukrainian fate would be decided by just one great power, or at least uh, a wannabe great power, Russia, or they would reach some compromise. But it, it, it's also, like, I mean, I mean, it's even painful to, to, to say. I mean, if they were seen in, since the end of October, that... Putin is going to invade, that he is indeed preparing the army which is capable for this invasion. Why they did so little about that? Why they were only using it for, 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 for warnings, for media statements, and, and now claiming that they were exposing Russian plans in order to prevent them? They did not prevent it. And now the people in Ukraine are dying. And it's not to say, of course, that it's uh, the U.S. guilt primarily. Of course, the person who pushed the button is Vladimir Putin, and he's primarily responsible for all this destruction for, and, to, and for the killings of the thousands of Ukrainians and Russians, Russian soldiers. But if they knew why they did so little about this, I guess this is a better question for us here in the United States, but I'm curious if if you've had an answer to that question as as you've gone over it in your mind. Why, why, why the U.S. didn't do more? I mean, I I, I can only speculate, and of course, we would need to see how it would develop. Would they, for example, now help to reach peaceful settlement between Ukraine and Russia? 
And one of the uh, possible ways, at least what what I see at, at, at this moment from the different expert discussions and what's the, the use of these negotiations between Ukraine and Russia, that it could be kind of like a trade that Ukraine could get an EU membership or at least a very clear prospect of EU membership that indeed many people in Ukraine protested for during the Euromaidan revolution and we should have a, an overwhelming support among the Ukrainians, especially now after the war started. And uh, that would also strengthen Ukrainian institutions. And on the other side, Russia would get the neutral status of Ukraine. So Ukraine would be something like Austria or Finland, um, within EU, however, not in NATO. Mm -hmm. And EU membership would also be a kind of like a security guarantee for Ukraine. Attacking an EU country again would be much riskier for Putin. And that there would be some compromise on the status of Crimea and uh, and Donbass. And something that uh, Putin vaguely calls denazification leaving himself a lot of space to actually uh, to claim any victory on this very vague thing because uh, everybody understands and I think also within the Russian government it's also very clearly understood that there are no actual Nazis within the Ukrainian government and the mm-hmm. position and influence of Ukrainian far right is much more complicated story but uh, of course if you if you give this uh, so so vague uh, goals uh, then uh, you you get a very clear benefit that you can claim a victory, whatever would happen. Right. Perhaps he would call it denazification if, for example, uh, uh, Ukraine would re- rename some streets named after Stepan Bandera, the leader of Ukrainian nationalists in the mm-hmm. before before the, and during the Second World War, or for example, uh, the revision of the uh, language law that. Uh, pushes Russian language from the from Ukrainian public sphere. That's, everything can be can be put there. But in extreme, he might mean the complete regime change in Ukraine and installing a puppet government for Ukraine, which would, of course, be very unstable and would uh, could rule only based on force and coercion. How nervous are you that the Europeans are reacting in in such a in such an uh, unusually kind of aggressive way. It's 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 strange to see the United States being the one saying, "Hold on, you know, let's let's not you know get ahead of ourselves here." And the and the Europeans seem to be uh, reacting much more punitively even than than the U.S. Do you think that things are spiraling at this point, or do you have some optimism that these talks could actually result in some type of settlement that, that you discussed? Uh, I don't know. It's a good question. We've, we've, we need to analyze it. I, I have the psychological answer that I just told you, that you, Europeans actually did not believe that much in the imminence of the invasion, and now they, uh, they react much stronger. It's all, it may also depend on the on the dynamics of uh, European public opinion, 
the uh, sympathies that many Europeans now have towards the Ukrainian people, and uh, especially in Poland. I, I I don't know actually, but uh, the, the 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 point is that we need to to see how helpful would be the EU and US efforts in reaching the uh, peaceful solution uh, for the war. If they would really decide on the clear EU prospects for Ukraine, better if even some membership plan the plan of uh, implementing whatever is needed for Ukraine to become an EU member. And despite the costs, of course it would require a lot of expenses, but we also need to understand that they they owe something to Ukraine. If they, in 2008, decided that Ukraine will become a um, member of NATO, but they never ever we're going to fight for Ukraine. And now it's they are very explicitly saying saying it's in, the same thing is said by Biden, by Johnson. They would never ever uh, uh, create a no-fly zone, for example, and starting uh, shooting down the uh, Russian uh, airplanes over Ukraine that bomb Ukrainian cities. If they never ever were going to fight for Ukraine, what what, what was that uh, thing about? Ukrainian NATO membership, if you are supposed to defend Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, that was hugely re- responsible. And they owe something to Ukraine now. And they have to, they have to pay for this. And of course, the EU membership would, would require a lot of money allocated to Ukraine in, uh, in, for the reconstruction of the, uh, of the state, for the reconstruction of Ukrainian cities, and to help Ukrainian economy. But if they would only continue to send weapons to Ukraine and uh, intensify the sanctions, and, but of, there is, of course, a limit to which they capable to push the level of sanctions, after which Putin might consider some harsher measures than simply economic against the, uh, against the European Union. And he, he has already explicitly warned about the nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Russia has been preparing for sanctions since 2014. All the things they are implementing now, the disconnection from SWIFT, for example, they, they, have all, they all have been uh, mentioned in 2014, and Russia was preparing some measures in order to survive during the sanctions. Another thing is actually China is almost explicitly supporting Russia. And without the uh, Chinese uh, support, Russia would never ever avoid Ukraine. Mm. So if if EU policy would be simply about weapons and sanctions, and they would not help to reach the peaceful solution, that would mean that they actually want to see the war in Ukraine going as long as possible, disregarding the civilian casualties, disregarding the casualties in Ukrainian army, disregarding destruction of Ukrainian cities and economies. So that, that is what they need. They, 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 they need some forever war for Russia in Ukraine that, of course, Russia would hardly survive. Right, right. But we also understand that Putin bet almost everything on this war. If he is going to be defeated in this war, he would very likely lose his power and maybe his life in Russia. 
because the support for the war in Russia is, is not that high and there is not that much of enthusiasm for the war. The anti-war sent- sentiments are quite uh, significant. And even though not so many people are coming to the streets, because it's actually quite dangerous. Thousands of Russians were right. uh, arrested for participation in the anti-war rallies. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it's the longer the war would go would would continue, the more the casualties in the uh, Russian army, the stronger would be the anti-war sentiments, and uh, it may end as uh, the First World War uh, for Russia, which yeah. she was losing. In, uh, by 1917, and at some point Putin may uh, end in uh, either in a violent revolution or in a coup d'etat by the elites who would be tired of the sanctions and the impact uh, on their on their well well being. So for Putin now is uh, very essential to reach a quick victory. But uh, if the uh, policies of the EU and US would be only about sanctions and weapons, that means that uh, they probably are interested in this war. Right. We'll see. Right. Well, Volodymyr Shchenko, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. That was Vladimir Shchenko. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 